Welcome to Green City, a podcast focused on sustainability. I'm your host, Lene Marty Henson. We invite you to listen in on our conversations for positive change. It is my hope that we can all come away with something that resonates within our own lives and inspires us to action within our own communities. Let's start where we are and find ways to work together to create more connected, more vibrant, and indeed more sustainable communities. Join us each week as we learn from each other. This morning, we are continuing our series on weather and climate with Chris Glollinger, Chief Meteorologist at KCCI here in Des Moines. Chris completed internships at NOAA and WABC in New York. He received his BS in meteorology from Plymouth State University and was awarded a CBM from the American Meteorological Society, where he presently serves on the broadcast board. Chris established Boston's first climate change series and produced two half-hour specials on how climate change affects all aspects of life. He has won three Emmys and two NBC GEM Awards, and we're thrilled to have you here with us today, Chris. Thank you. Lene, thanks for having me. So to begin, we'd like to have you, in your own words, tell a little bit about your journey to this point, if you will. Yeah, it's been an interesting road uh, since second grade. I guess you can you can connect the dots. That's when a hurricane hit my hometown, Hurricane Bob, back in 1991, and it ignited a passion for weather. And from there, uh, I started to build on that interest and I found out that you needed to be good at math to go into meteorology. wasn't the strongest in, in math, but I had to learn to be good at it, good enough and, and proficient enough to be able to go on and get my degree. I thought communicating the science would be the most effective use of my skill set. That's why I went to broadcast meteorology. Uh, Primarily, I just focused on day-to-day weather. Then I shifted my focus to incorporate climate as I saw it was becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And I looked at these issues firsthand. Uh, I was crunching the numbers myself. I came up with my own analysis of the changes that we were seeing, especially in Boston. But then I think the tipping point was a little bit before that in 2012, and even arguably 2011, when I covered two major hurricanes in the Northeast. Hurricane Irene, which devastated upstate New York and Vermont with catastrophic flooding. I was there on the ground Mm. seeing that with my own eyes. And then a year later, Superstorm Sandy hitting New York City. We went through decades without major storms affecting the tri-state area. And then we were hit with two in a two-year span. And that was eye-opening to see that kind of damage in the largest city in the United States. Mm -hmm. From there, I then went on to a couple more stations before Boston and then covered two wild hurricane seasons, Harvey, Irma, Dorian, and Florence. And I said, this is not natural. This was not our planet a decade ago or even two decades ago. We are seeing significant changes. And that's how I've started to incorporate tying climate change into our weather cast. And then it brought me out here to Iowa, where I incorporate that data into nightly weather casts. Mm -hmm. Which, which those of us in the environmental realm and anyone who's aware and paying attention, we appreciate that you're just kind of integrating it into what you do, which makes sense. 
So is this taught at school when you are in school to become a meteorologist? It, it, climatology has always been uh, the sister subject to meteorology. It falls under the umbrella of atmospheric science. It is, I think, a bigger focus since I've left school. There hmm. are majors now that are looking at climate science specifically. That is also new since my time after I graduated back in 2006. We're seeing these changes happening rapidly, uh, hmm. going from you dip into it a little bit in, in your schooling to now having a formal degree in the subject hmm. matter in a matter of a couple of decades. That's, I'd say, pretty significant. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it for the meteorologists who have been in the field, it is taken learning the science on our own. And if you're a scientist, you're always learning. And to be a good scientist, you make sure that you continue to stay up on the latest data, the latest research uh, as you continue in your professional line of work. You don't just get your diploma and that's it. You're mm -hmm. constantly learning. And and that's that triggered my getting my master's in emergency management. And I was able, it was a, a, a interdisciplinary masters where I focused on climate mitigation and adaptation hmm. because I saw that is the future of what we're doing as meteorologists as weather and technology continues to advance as technology advances, not the weather, but as technology advances, uh, our role transforms. And I think we will get to a day where the day-to-day -day weather operations or day-to-day -day meteorology is very different than what it is right now. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So one thing you did in your Boston days was you um, started, a, you did a special on climate change. So tell us about that, because that was a great series. And I'll link that in the blog so that our listeners can actually find that and watch it. I've wanted to cover climate change, uh, and it always seemed like something else was a little bit more pressing. I was fortunate to work with a executive producer who is now moved up to be a managing editor uh, with NBC. And he was on board with allowing me to tell the story of climate change. I was the weekend evening meteorologist when I was in Boston, and that allowed me to be flexible during the week. And mm -hmm. three days that I worked during the week were focused on driving and creating climate content. Mm -hmm. uh, we, when we approached higher level station management about the idea, they were skeptical about how will you keep a series or a franchise going beyond a couple of weeks or maybe a few months. We had sustained coverage every single week uh, during my time there. There was a surplus of stories and some days it was so overwhelming with the work being done in Boston or up and down the New Hampshire seacoast dealing with the rising sea level or flash droughts or extreme heat and a part of a country where a lot of people don't have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. Coastal New England, you were kept cool by oceans for decades, even centuries. Now that's changing. The stories were endless. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. And is it still going on? Even though you're not there, are they still producing this series? Uh, unfortunately, I think it has been put on the back burner. I think they're doing some climate coverage. I think that that's becoming an initiative across station ownership groups across mm -hmm. the country, which mm -hmm. is something I like to see. I don't like 
exclusives when it comes to covering climate change in this industry. You want to be the first to report. You want to have that exclusive. But in this case, it really takes a team effort. And I think everyone needs to be covering it, uh, no matter where we are in the country, no matter what station we work at. Right. And do you find that this is becoming more and more common with the chief meteorologists around the country that you are integrating this into your broadcast? I do. The hardest thing for me is not having the flexibility of getting out in the field as much to be able to tell climate stories in a little bit more detail. Incorporating it into a three-minute weather cast brings up a whole new set of challenges and finding ways to do it effectively. I would have a minute 30 to three minutes to tell a weekly climate series uh, story when I was in Boston. But then when we did the half-hour specials, that was even more of a, a platform for us to get the information out there. Um, the role is different. Uh, it is, I think, easier here to do that because I, I don't think that there's been a lot of climate coverage in Boston. And I kind of make the analogy, it was going from preaching to the choir into the lion's den, so to speak, when it comes to uh, public opinion on talking about this, because unfortunately, it's been politicized, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. though there's, I, I use this stat, and I think some people, uh, it takes a little while to process, but doctors, for example, uh, when I ask this at school visits, uh, show of hands, how many, how many students think that smoking causes cancer? Every single student will raise their hand. But then mm -hmm. when you ask, how many of you believe that climate change is driven by humans, there are a lot less hands. The Atmospheric science community has more data that climate change is anthropogenically driven than scientists have or medical scientists have that smoking causes cancer. And we just take that as, oh, absolutely, it is a cancer causer. And it, and it is. But I have a father-in-law who's in his mid-80s and has smoked uh, a pack of cigarettes every single day. And yeah. he is fine. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not recommending that. But I'm just saying, in that case, that's something that I think every hand of that room raised when I asked that question versus something that we know for certain is that connection between humans, CO2 emissions, and what that does to our planet, warming yeah. it up. Um, so I think since it, it, there's been a lack of coverage, I think, in this area, I think this is a good starting point. But I think that really there needs to be roles where you have stories devoted to climate change. I think that is critical. But there are more chief meteorologists across the country that are tying in extreme weather events and connecting the dots between those events and climate change. Right, right. Well, and I, I know I always am challenged when I have to fill out a survey for whatever groups I might be supporting, and they always want you to rank the issues. And personally, of course, I'm in this realm, but I don't know how you don't put climate change as number one, because it seems to affect everything else. You know, whether you're talking about the economy or healthcare or infrastructure or it doesn't matter. It's affecting everything. And you point this out in the series you did as well. I mean, every, there are so many important issues right now. And unfortunately, uh, they're almost irrelevant if we don't address the climate crisis that we have going on right now. Right. Um, because if you really do take a look at the data and you see how little time we have to make meaningful change, 
it is pretty scary. Um, and yeah, of course, those issues are, are critical. Other issues are critical, but you can't prioritize issues without tackling climate change first. Right. I, I'm, I'm a real believer in that. Right. And, and particularly with the economy. And again, this is something you point out in the series that, that we're pretty aware of, but there's a disconnect in that it's costing a whole lot of money right now to address the damages happening after the fact. And it would be, a, so it's already costing a lot of money. And if we could just try to get in front of it a little bit more, it would be better. And if we don't do anything, it's, it's going to be way more. It's pretty funny that if you think of the mindset of somebody that is fiscally conservative, you'd rather spend less than more, even if that expenditure is in the front end of things. And that's simply what this is doing. There's a FEMA figure that I use frequently, and it's for every dollar that is spent on mitigation, up to $7 in recovery costs are saved. Wow. I don't know what kind of rate of return is that good, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think people would be jumping up and down to take up those opportunities because a lot of the mitigation, uh, mitigation projects are jobs. They're infusing the local economy with money. Uh, it's providing these co-benefits, not just putting up a seawall. And I think people maybe get stuck in that frame of mind. In Boston, for example, they use living shorelines where uh, it's a park by day at low tide and not during a storm. But during high tide, that that seawall, that park, that green space turns into a protection for the properties and the lives that live along that shoreline because it lessens the blow of the waves. We're focusing on that. I mean, there's the sustainability too, mm -hmm. by creating these adaptation and mitigation techniques that can incorporate and improve our lives, not just protect us, they're improving our lives by increasing green space in urban environments, which will lessen the effects of urban heat islands. That's another example. Um, you need to look at the co-benefits. And if you just look at the cost figure analysis of spending money on these projects, you have to look much past much farther past the the impacts of just saving life and property because your day-to-day -day life is so much better with these these improvements yes and that's what it, it, those nature-based solutions which we we like to build our walls and our you know structural things but looking to nature for those solutions they know how to do it a lot better nature is better at um protecting and managing and restoring itself than a lot of the things that we come up with. In Boston, the Boston Harbor Islands essentially have protected Boston since its infancy. Uh, it's a series of islands that serve as a natural flood barrier. Uh, there are scientists uh, with the Stone Living Lab it's part of the University of Massachusetts uh, in, in Boston. Uh, they're looking at trying to mimic what those islands are creating, the protection that they create. Um, you have waves that are 20, 30, 40 feet outside of those islands, but inside the harbor. I mean, if you had 20, 30, 40 waves that feeded all the way to the harbor, you wouldn't be able to live in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and as to your point, to deal with nature, the best person to ask 
how to deal with it is mother nature herself, really. I mean, that's how we need to really think about these projects going forward. Right. And also with the clean energy, the fact that it, that there are endless amounts of jobs that can boost the economy if we focus on that versus trying to hold on to some of the more archaic energy I, systems. I was disheartened when I focused on energy stories and clean energy stories saying, well, what about people? I, I picture people like my parents' age or my in-laws and who have had a career perhaps in coal and um, what happens to these jobs in these communities? But I found out uh, there's a professor, another University of Massachusetts professor, but this one in UMass Amherst, who helps communities uh, figure out financially how to kind of divest and, and get away from these, these jobs in coal. And what he told me was the people that are directly implied, um, employed by coal could fit into Gillette Stadium in Foxborough where the Patriots play. I'm, every person's employment and happiness is important. There's no question. But if you are needing to retool, re-educate, these costs aren't going to be exorbitant. They're going to be manageable because there aren't millions of people. There are tens of thousands of people and perhaps maybe hundreds of thousands when you look at the, the fossil fuel industry uh, as a whole. Uh, and there are retirement packages, uh, again, retraining, retooling, reeducating, that some of these jobs are safer, they're healthier, and they're more lucrative. I mean, they're, the, the DMAC program here, what program do you know where somebody gets out of school or is getting their degree and already has a job lined up? Heck, I wish I had that job security. I wish I had that luxury when I was leaving school because I was nervous trying to find that first job. These, these students that are going through that program have jobs immediately and have jobs before they even graduate. And they're high paying jobs. Yeah. So it is doable. Yes. So what, what would you like our listeners most to understand about climate change and its effect on our weather patterns and, and how do they get more engaged? What would you just tell them if they, if they're like, yeah, I, I want to do something. I think here it's a little difficult to get people engaged because the impacts of climate change aren't as visual. The rate of warming isn't as dramatic as other parts of the country and other parts of the globe. Um, we're not seeing high tides inundate roadways, shutting them down at rush hour on a perfectly sunny day. Hmm. Um, you look at conservative states, which are along the coast, and it's not a political issue. Bob Inglis is a friend. He's a congressman from South Carolina. The American Conservative Union has given him, I think, a 94, 95% rating. Um, and he started, after losing his election, he started Republican, uh, Republic with an EN uh, for environment, educating fellow Republicans on the climate crisis. I think here it's largely a political issue, which is a little disheartening, but I encourage people to learn about it, to ask questions, and to talk about it. 
That's all we can really do is communicate it because if it's not in your day-to-day vocabulary, it's going to fall off your radar. That's why I mention as much as I do. Giving that constant nudge, people will start thinking about it more. What happened to the fishing industry in my hometown was devastating. There's no more commercial fishing and it's, that happened long before, uh, that happened long before, um, the big development out in the Hamptons where I'm from. Um, and then the fishing industry migrated North and then it moved into the Gulf of Maine and the Gulf of Maine is now the warmest. It's the body of water that's uh, warming at the fastest rate uh, compared with anywhere globally, which is amazing to think about. Really? Well, the lobster industry is now shifting into Nova Scotia then shifting out of Nova Scotia to Newfoundland. From there, it's going up towards Iceland. It's devastating these communities. And you tell a bayman, you tell a fisherman in that part of the country that there's no such thing as climate change. And those are historically conservative people, um, including my family. Um, they would they would have some choice words for you. Hmm. I don't think that we're at that point yet but i think that the ag industry here has a lot to lose and i think if steps aren't taken we're going to be in a very similar position and i would hate to see that happen because new york city injected its money into my hometown and a lot of the coastal communities did recover in new england because of boston and other big cities because the water kind of helps that out but when you lose agriculture your options become pretty limited. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a big concern that I have. Right. So what brings you hope? I, the young people that I have spoken with here that are engaged, that do speak out, the emails that I do get that are positive. Uh, somebody told me after, um, not to, to take this on a, downward note, but I I did receive uh, a threat against me and my safety. Um, And that kind of stuck out from the negative feedback that I've Mm -hmm. received. Um, But it's the small minority that are writing in. So my friend helped me kind of cope with this mentally because mentally it's been overwhelming um, and draining. but if you eat out at a restaurant and you really like your experience, how often do you leave a Yelp review? I'm guilty of not doing that. Right, right. So I've had a fair amount of people write in saying, this is what's been missing out of the puzzle. And that gives me hope because mm-hmm. there aren't many people writing positive Yelp reviews. It's usually uh, uh, a platform for people to air their grievances. Uh, but in this case, Yes, there's a ton, and I would be lying if I said that there wasn't. There's a ton of negative feedback, but there are some positive voices out there, and that gives me hope. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Chris, for all that you do and um, bringing it up and integrating it into our everyday lives is very much needed. So we're very grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. For those of you listening, remember you can check out the podcast on yourgreenportal.com or on Spotify and other streaming platforms. 
Tune in next week as we continue this series on weather. Until then, stay curious, stay engaged, and thanks for listening. That's all for this edition of Green City. I'm Lene Marty Henson, and I hope you continue to listen in on these conversations focused on the broad realm of sustainability. I truly believe that we go further faster when we come together to have real dialogue, inspiring us toward practical solutions. Let's continue to learn from each other how best to nurture this precious planet we call home. Thanks for listening. We are truly grateful.